This episode of Into the Wild is sponsored by Leica Sport Optics. It's well known and proven that connecting with wildlife and nature can improve your overall well-being. So why would you not want to turn it up a notch by getting to see things even closer and clearer with a set of binoculars? It's what I have done and I've not looked back. I can't recommend enough checking out the range of optics that Leica have to offer. A great range of kit with superb optics and they even have payment plans if you don't have the cash up front. I wouldn't shout about a company on the show that I haven't used or been impressed by and it's important to me that companies we are partnered with have the same values as Into the Wild, which is why I'm proud to give them 5 thumbs up. If you want to check out more of Leica's range then visit their website that can be found in the write up of this episode. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone and welcome to Into the Wild, your weekly podcast all about wildlife, nature and conservation. I am your host, Ryan Dalton. Thanks a bunch for clicking play on that pod. Hello, nature nerds around the world. How are you doing? Thanks for tuning in to Into the Wild. Um, Just to start the podcast on this note, the oat milk I have put in my tea today is... And I'm not happy about it. But let's not talk about that for too long. It's so annoying when you get a bad oat. How can oat milk be bad? It's oats. And water, and then maybe some more, like one or two. But how can you get that wrong? God's sake, Oatly! Don't usually buy Oatly either. I did it because it was the only one there. <coughs> up my tea. Anyway, moving on. I've got two things to tell you before we do 60 second nature news and then we go on to the show. The first one is we are taking the month of June off. This is the last episode for four weeks. The reason why we're doing that is because Oscar and I have a lot of work to do with our film Beyond the Trigger that's coming out later this year. Um, so we thought it was best if we just take our month off a couple of months early from the main episodes. So there will be no episodes in June. I'm sure I'll be doing some stuff on social media, like some lives, and I'll be out definitely recording some episodes. But there will be no episodes coming out. However, our trailer for Beyond the Trigger will be going live the first week of June. So watch out on our social media for that. The second bit of news I've got to tell you is very exciting. Into the Wild now has some merchandise available. Yes, we do. You can head over to intothewildpodcast.tmill.com. That's T-W-E-M-I-L-L. The link is obviously in the write-up of the show and the links will be available on our link trees, which are on all our social media. But you can visit that shop and we have some t-shirts, some hoodies, some tote bags um, with some of our logos are you know how merchandise works i don't need to have to i don't need to explain that to you at all but the good thing about t-mail is that all their products are 100 organic cotton their packaging is 100 plastic three and their factories where it's all made and printed is 100 renewable energy run so if you fancy a t-shirt that says uh, proud eco freak or ultimate nature nerd or you just fancy a tote bag with into the wild podcast written on it then head over to into the wild and um, by purchasing anything on that store you are of course helping into the wild continue all the money goes back into the show um, helping the running of it the future progress of into the wild as well anyway let's move on to 60 second nature news there's a lot of <coughs> in the world and we're feeling down so let me tell you about four things that are happening around the world that may be a little less <coughs> and may pick you up this is a segment where i read out four nature stories from around the world that are positive celebrating wildlife positive stories about it, what people are doing, um, just to get us away from the... So here we go, 60 second nature news, as quick as I can in 60 seconds, let's get through these stories. One, two, three. 
Vulture populations are now steady in Bangladesh. After one species, the red-headed vulture going locally extinct, and two more critically endangered species, major conservation efforts were underway to protect the remaining vultures. High use of veterinary drugs in cattle that can poison scavengers has now been banned. Bangladesh has also declared several vulture safe zones across the country where officials work with local communities to raise awareness about the importance of vultures to the environment and to protect breeding sites and habitats. The population of the endangered Hawaiian monk seal has surpassed a level not seen in more than two decades, according to federal officials. Officials estimate the population has grown by more than 100 from 2019 to 2021, bringing the total from 1,435 to 1,570 seals. A community has dedicated 427 hectares of its land as a sanctuary for one of the most impressive birds of prey in the Americas, the king vulture. The communally managed forest in Nubo Bacau in Mexico's Campeche state has shown that forest management can improve both quality of life and the conservation of wild animals and their habitats. And finally, giraffe populations are on the up. According to the most recent data surveyed across the continent of Africa, giraffe populations are now looking to be around 117,000, which is a 20% increase from the last major survey done in 2015. And that's the end of 60 Second Nature News. There we go, that was 60 Second Nature News. Now on to today's show, ladies and gentlemen. This one was brilliant. I loved recording this episode. I was nervous, I was excited. On today's show, I got to speak to environmental journalist, Mr. George Monbio. I was very privileged, lucky, and fortunate enough to receive an early copy of George's new book, Regenesis. It was a powerful read. It was a hard read in places due to the content. Um, it was an impressive read due to the sheer amount of research that has gone. But I've never seen a book with basically a chapter of references at the end. It was absolutely incredible the amount of research George had to do for this book. And George came on the show to talk about it. Um, I wanted to ask him why he wanted to write this book, what it was about, how hard it was, um, the division in society with this topic. Um, George's book, Regenesis, explores global farming systems. After George looking into the soil of his allotment and finding a plethora of life that he didn't even know existed, he started to think more and more about the damage that we could be doing to the life underneath our soil, the very life that we rely on for our food. So George looked at how the farming system worked around the world. And not only that, once he talks through some of the potential problems, George visits areas of solutions from the way people are managing their land to potential food solutions for the future. I also wanted to talk to George about the division, like I said, because farming worldwide, but you know, specifically talking about the UK, farming is a very sensitive topic and for good reason. Farming is people's lives, their livelihoods, their culture, their history, their family tree, basically, farming can be. So to criticize it on any level right or wrong scientific or just personal can create some debates and i want to talk to george about how he felt about that was he nervous about this book coming out and was he worried about some of the chats he was going to get it was a fantastic chat i'm super grateful for george coming on the show super grateful for the opportunity to get to talk to him the book is fantastic I highly recommend grabbing Regenesis. You can find the link to get a copy in the write-up of this episode. But ladies and gentlemen, this is the last episode for four weeks. Um, so we're going to have a break. So I'll talk to you in four weeks' time and I'll see you on social media. Feel free to drop a hello. Um, but this is Regenesis with George Monbiot. Well, George, welcome to Into the Wild. Absolutely pleasure to have you here. How are you? 
Thanks, Ryan. Uh, yeah, uh, fine. A bit hassled, a bit um, overworked, but then there's nothing new there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nothing new. Nothing new for the world. Life goes on and we're still working away. <laughs> I mean, I will ask this question. This is a question we ask to everyone. And, you know, I, I don't want to be too humble, but I w- <laughs> for anyone that's living under a rock, George, would you like to explain to everyone who you are and what is it you do? Okay, um, I'm a 59-year-old professional troublemaker. Um, <laughs> I, I've, um, I've spent 37 years um, so far as an environmental journalist and activist um, trying desperately to get people to pay attention to the most important issues on Earth, mm-hmm. which is like our survival and the survival of everything else and our life support systems, which ensure that survival. And it would be fair to say it's been a frustrating 37 years um, and and the frustration is not yet over. So, yeah, I'll keep banging my head against that wall and something's going to crack. <laughs> Something one way or another will crack. <laughs> yeah. that, I was going to ask you that, 37 years, because I was going to say to you, was in your journalism career, was it always environmental activism or did you kind of, was there something you, st- was that, did you know that was the path you were going to go down? Yeah, yeah. Um, I was clear about that from when I was a kid. Um, wow. This is what I wanted to do. Um, when I was at university, I was looking mm. around and thinking, there's just no investigative environmental journalism going on. I mean, there was certainly no broadcasting. And mm. so I I hammered on the doors of the BBC's Natural History Unit and just said, look, you've got to, you've got to let me do this because yeah. no one's doing it. And, and, and eventually I was told, uh, literally, these are the words, you're so <laughs> persistent, you've got the job. <laughs> fine we'll let you do it <laughs> yeah exactly it was easier it was literally easier for them to let me in so they thought than to keep me out <laughs> god so it was just that persistence that ended up like yeah. you having this 37 long career yeah well i mean it, it's been my attitude throughout you know it's just like i will just keep pushing you know i'll yeah. keep pushing on that locked door which yeah and it is locked throughout most of the media it is mm. firmly locked and bolted and you know I've, I've had to use what opportunities there are and they've become more limited as time goes by yeah know? so you know it's great that we've got all these new media like this podcast yeah, yeah. to be able to discuss things which are pretty well excluded from the old media you know, it's and, it's an event when when you get something mm-hmm. uh, a meaningful, actually new and important and investigative bit of environmental journalism on the BBC to this day. I was I was going to say that actually, probably a bit, it sounds a bit too early to ask this question, but I was going to say like, do, do you notice a difference from thirty seven years ago to now? So I was really lucky in those first two years of my career, which was eighty five to eighty seven, because it was the last flowering really of of a sort of of bold public service broadcasting, the the BBC was really scoring some points um, against the government, against powerful corporations and others. Yeah. And that, from the government's point of view, was a problem. Um, in particular, it made two series, one called Maggie's Militant Tendency, about the um, front benches who had been actual fascists in their youth, and another one called Secret Society about um, unauthorised um, public spending that was bypassing Parliament to do all this really dodgy stuff. Mm. And Thatcher said, right, enough, finished. She she forced the Director General to resign, imposed a new one, an accountant, um, cleaned out the board, cleaned out everything. The very next day, my boss came in and said, that's it, no more investigative journalism. 
I said, I said, what do you mean? <laughs> and, and he said, he, he said, it's across the corporation, no more investigative journalism. You can't do any more. And, and it was like, and I said, but you can't have journalism unless it's investigative. Yeah. And he said, he said, I know that, you know that. It's not up to me. And it's never recovered. It, it has never got back to anything like what it was before. In fact, it's just got worse and worse, especially mm-hmm. when then later on over the Iraq war, another um, Director General Greg Dyke was also forced to resign, and mm. and this this disciplining of of the BBC has gone on ever since. And so, yeah, it has got worse. It's got a lot worse. And a, a sort of another big change in 1995 when I, I'd been making one or two TV documentaries for the BBC after leaving. I'd gone yeah. freelance um, soon after that conversation with my boss. I just thought there's no future. <laughs> well, it makes for me sense here. to, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> And um, and and it was going all right, and then we came forward with you know, what I thought was a really powerful um, new proposal for an environmental series, entirely new in its approach. We'd spent months working on it, and the controller, the then controller of BBC Two, he looked at this. Uh, he looked at the title. He literally looked at the title. He said, "Is this environment?" And my producer said, "Yes." And he said, "I've spent two years trying to get environment off this channel. Why the f- are you bringing me environment?" Oh and that was it. And it's been like that ever since. And now you know, the last couple of years, there's been a bit of, oh, my God, all, all the young people are deserting the channel. I wonder why that could be. Uh, and it's like, <laughs> so they've been doing a few. Exactly. <laughs> they have been doing a, a, a few environmental programs, but they're mm-hmm. making the programs that should have been made 20 years ago. But yeah. they're not making the programs that should be being made today. Yeah. And it's just, you know, if you were to ask me, you know, who's done more damage? The fossil fuel companies or the media, without a shadow of a doubt, I'd say the media. And the reason is that they provide the social license for yeah. the fossil fuel companies and all the other destructive interests to, yeah. to act. So it's like, you know, keeping people in the dark almost. Yeah, yeah, they really, they have really genuinely kept us in the dark. And, at the, and you know, when they cover issues at all, they do so in ways which tend to favour power, which don't tell the whole story. You know, I realised that people from that controller, channel controller onwards, I realised that these senior figures, they do not exist to facilitate good journalism. They they exist to contain it. And it's it's about not letting anyone scare the horses. Now, the, the position of the journalist should be to have your hands around the throat of power. That is what journalism should be for. And very, very few journalists are allowed to do that anywhere. And, you know, I'm lucky. I'm very, very lucky in that I'm still able to go for the throat and to mm-hmm. challenge power. But the, the outlets I work for are the only ones which I can work for. There's nowhere else. <laughs> yeah, it's not like you've got a massive menu to choose <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Every time we, whenever we talk about stuff like this, and hearing you say that now, I've just, I, and I know you're probably going to be so familiar with this. I'm just thinking in my head, don't look up, don't look. Oh up, don't yeah, look up, God! Up. I mean, it's, it's a story it's of my screaming. life. I mean, I mean, I mean, it was like it was literally, it was like watching my life flash before me. I felt, I felt, <laughs> oh my God, this is me. This is yeah. me. Yeah, it's even, mad. even to the point of totally losing it in a TV studio. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I was like, like, like this welter of celebrity, and it's like. I can't take it anymore. <laughs> did you feel because of watching Don't Look Up, I guess? Did you, was that interview after watching Don't Look Up? No, it was before. Was but it when before? I watched Don't Look Up, I was thinking, oh my God, this is uncanny. You know, this yeah. is remarkable. It just felt so familiar. I've noticed, I don't know if it is a pattern and whether I'm just kind of like looking for the, the reasons, but I've noticed since Don't Look Up, I'm seeing more passion not more passion but like because people had it anyway but more drive for people to really show their emotion with the stories they're telling because it almost said in that show you're watching it going yeah we should be angry about these things 
and there isn't a problem with but conveying that really. And I guess in more interviews, whether it's about social justice or environment while they're connected, but you know, whatever the topic, I'm seeing more people kind of go, no, I'm angry. And I'm just wondering if there's a correlation there. Well, there's a very good point that um, Professor Julia Steinbrecher makes, which where she says, um, you know, why don't people believe climate scientists? And she mm. says part of the reason is that climate scientists talk as if it's not real, because they'll say, well, uh, so our projections show that in the year 2050, all life support systems are going to collapse and the planet will be a dust bowl. And as you can see from this slide, you know, and it's like, because they're not showing emotion, because it's 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 like, you know, they're doing what yeah. scientists do, which is, you know, I'm going to be detached and objective and things, which is fine within science. But, you know, if you're talking to people who are not scientists and they're listening to this and say, right, they can't reconcile the disconnect between what you're saying and what you're apparently feeling. Yeah. If if you're saying we are totally stuffed unless everything turns around and you are saying it without any visible emotion at all, it doesn't ring true. Mm-hmm. That's so and, true. And, yeah. and I think we've got to be brave enough to say, yeah, actually, this is what we're feeling. Mm-hmm. Let's stop pretending to be machines. You know, we're, we're yeah. not. We're we feel this, you know, and I, I've been in this business all this time because I feel it. Yeah. You know, that, that's, that's why I'm there. You know, the reason I've been in this business for 37 years is because I feel it. If, if yeah. I were just a calculating machine, I would have given up ages ago because yeah. <laughs> it's like, what do you get from it? You know, you just get a lifetime of abuse. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you're, you're right. I've never really thought about that. When people are conveying it, you can't just go, the world's going to end, clip, clip, close the briefcase, walk yeah, off. You're like, okay, exactly. thanks thanks for the message. <laughs> you might as well be the guy on the street saying the world is not, like, you know, ringing the bell, like with the yeah, A-frame on. Yeah, so yeah. it's, yeah, I think emotion does play a massive part in the conveying um we need to talk about your book oh, we, yes. ha- oh, we yeah, have that. to <laughs> <laughs> that's the reason George. this is where i get um, strangled by my publicist you didn't talk about the book <laughs> well i've been reading it over the coming weeks and i'm a slow reader i don't i don't dive into but i have to read a few pages at a time and go away um but i was gripped by regenesis and for an array of reasons, <laughs> like, you know, for some good and for some, oh God, kind of reasons. Yeah, yeah. Um, you even knew a lot about the global farming systems that are in place, <laughs> or you now know a hell of a lot about the global food systems that are in place. Which which one was it? And how long did it take to get all this research done? Because there's so much information in that book. So before I started, I, I thought I knew a lot about it, <laughs> and uh, which is always so a, a, a trap. Yeah, right. Um, and, you know, I have taken an interest in it a very long time. As a teenager, I worked on an intensive pig farm. And, you know, a lot of the time I was thinking, uh, why is this legal? And, and so I've been, you know, th- thinking about the system for a while. And, and mm. that thinking was accelerated when I moved to Wales in 2007 and was just like surrounded by this desert. Yeah, no trees, no wildlife. Yeah. What's going on? And there was hardly any productivity either it was just a few sheep scattered on the hills and i realized mm. oh my god those few sheep scattered on the hills are pretty well wiped out everything because they selectively browse out tree seedlings mm. and other nutritious plants leaving behind almost nothing and that sort of made me even more interested but yeah when i came to to start the book i knew that actually 
you know, I thought I knew something, but I knew almost nothing. And and I guess having got to the end of it, I got to the point of saying, well, I know almost nothing plus a little tiny bit. <laughs> um, but but that little tiny bit was involved, you know, lots of field work, meeting loads of people around the place, but reading 5,000 scientific papers. Jesus Christ. It was insane. <laughs> I, I was starting work at four in the morning I was finishing at six in the evening when I stopped writing the book it was like recovering from a serious illness it took me three or four months until I felt better because I've got to say for the listener as well read the book and then you'll know the intensity of those 5,000 reports (laughs) because you're not they're not just reports George those are quite intense findings as well I guess the the reason when you're reading them are not I don't want to say well not positive things no I mean so so I've got a scientific background um but a lot of these fields were fields I hadn't really worked in before, mm-hmm. starting with soil ecology because you know they never taught it. You know, I, I, yeah. I, was, I had a zoology degree. I I, um, um, I I had a specialist module in ecology, but we just never went anywhere near soil ecology, and hardly anyone does. You know, and no. it's um, and 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 actually these are very complex subjects, and, and it takes you time to get your head around them. But also, yeah, as you suggest, there's some really scary stuff in the scientific literature which just has not been conveyed to the public at all you know there was stuff i was coming across on a daily basis and i thought oh my god I, everyone should know this mm-hmm. you know i want to run screaming down the street saying read this paper in geophysical <laughs> research letters now <laughs> which might not have been a very effective it's just not the best marketing george <laughs> <laughs> So, well, okay, that leads me on to my next question, because I was going to say to you, is something that you knew a bit about, but not a lot. What made you want to write the book about farming and the systems? What what brought that along? So it, it came about because of my developing interest in soil. And, and that came about through ecological boredom, because having moved back from Wales, back to England, in a place which isn't all that ecologically exciting, I pretty well exhausted all the possibilities of the wildlife that I could see, <laughs> and uh, and and I, you know, seeing wildlife. What that that is my that is the way I remain well vaguely sane at any rate. And yeah, and 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 without sort of new wildlife experiences, I really struggle. And so mm. I thought, what can I explore? What is there left? And then suddenly it's a uh no you know there's <laughs> an entire e- i'm standing on it i'm literally <laughs> i'm standing on it and 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 you know what i think most people don't grasp is that it the soil is an ecosystem yeah. it's a, and not just any old ecosystem it's one of the most diverse and complex ecosystems on earth it's as diverse as any rainforest or, or, or coral reef and as soon as you take a powerful lens to it, I mean, not all that powerful, like a jeweler's loop, you know, mm. 40 times yeah. magnification jeweler's loop. It costs six pounds online to buy one of these things. And it just opens up a world to the extent that it would if you took a diving course and, and went oh, you know, amazing, diving in, in the Red Sea or something. You yeah. know, it, it's it's just amazing. Um, it, not at the moment because the soil's so dry, you wouldn't see very much in it because it needs to be, soil needs to be damp and it needs to be warm. But and I was very lucky in the first day I started investigating it. It well, the conditions were just right, and uh, as soon as I got the focal length, it was a oh 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 oh, oh, oh my god oh, oh what's that? Put it back! Oh. Put it back! <laughs> I know, I know, and it's just incredible. You see all these things. You have, 
to begin with, no idea what they are. It's like, yeah. this thing's got 12 pairs of legs. What's got 12 <laughs> pairs? Oh, hang on. It's an entire phylum I've never heard of. You know, and it, all this sort of totally weird and mm. amazing stuff going on. The abundance is out of this world. You know, you, beneath a square metre of ground, you can have half a million small animals living. What? Uh, uh, across many thousands, tens of thousands of species, 90% of which have not been described by science. They do oh not have God. names. I mean, it's just, it's mind-blowing. And then and then the, the, the question of what soil is. Yeah. You know, it's like, so what, what, so hang on, why are we asking this question? Because, you know, only recently have we begun to appreciate that it's not just a load of stuff. It's a biological structure. Mm. It's highly structured by the creatures that live in it. In fact, it's made by the creatures that live in it. Without those creatures, there would be no such thing as soil. There'd be rock and there'd be air yeah. and there'd be nothing in between. Because without the structure which stabilises it, it would all just be washed straight off the land. And 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 what happens is the bacteria um, use the carbon in the soil um, to make polymers, glue basically, which they use to stick together the little tiny mineral particles and make homes for themselves. They make these effectively little capsules which Amazing. trap air and water and, and, and provide the habitats they need. And then the tiny little soil animals stick those bacterial capsules together and make their little capsules which they live in. And then the, the big soil animals like ants and worms, <laughs> this is the scale we're talking about. <laughs> those are the um, large ones. <laughs> these are the big ones. Yes, the big the game. Tiny, yes, exactly, the big game. They, they, they then um, stick those together to make their chambers and labyrinths and it's fractally scaled which means that whatever magnification you, you you use it's the same structure right and that provides this incredible structural stability and and it's it's zoned there's all these sort of zones of activity like around the root or around the ants nest or around the worm burrow or around and 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 so it's sort of highly structured internally it's highly structured as a whole it organizes itself into spontaneous worlds like dust in his dark materials um it's got these extraordinary properties and those properties are responsible for terrestrial life on earth you and i would not be here today if it were not for those properties 99% of our food comes from the soil and so this may be an obvious thing to say <laughs> So when it's <laughs> with, yeah. is that where the problems lie? <laughs> uh, that is where a big part of the problems lie. So, so you know, partly because we just don't respect and appreciate yeah. it. You know, we yeah. just think, oh, it's this stuff which plants stand up in. <laughs> we we <laughs> yeah. don't we don't understand. You know, the delicacy of these relationships. We don't understand. This is a complex system, and like mm -hmm. all complex systems, it has tipping points. Yeah. And, and it stabilizes itself within a certain range of pressure, like all complex systems do, through its self-regulating mechanisms. But you push it beyond that range, and those mechanisms start to spiral out of control. It reaches a tipping point, and it collapses. And that collapse is called a dust bowl. Cool. And, um, and, and what happens is, you know, if you've hammered and hammered and hammered your soil through overplowing it, through over-fertilizing it, um, uh, uh, other interventions like that, which just push it beyond endurance. Drought strikes, which is a sort of external shock, you know, classic case of what happens to complex systems. They're degraded, they lose their self-regulating function, they're mm. hit by an external pressure. And in, in a severe drought, hitting a degraded soil will increase the erosion rate by 6,000-fold overnight. And so you have fertile land just bang like that 
turning into a Dust Bowl. That's what happened in the Dust Bowl, and it's now happening in many other Dust Bowls around the world. Jesus, God, yeah, you don't realise it's that quick as well, do you? Mm, well, it's not no. quick. It's over a long period of time. Well, right? well, 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 what happens, it's like with all, all, all these systems, the, the degradation takes place over a long period of time, mm. and they quietly lose their resilience and you don't see that happening you don't no. see see it you don't realize it's happening and then and then suddenly you take it just can be a little tap you know this is why they talk about the butterfly's wing you know yeah that little tap and it just knocks it over the edge it pushes its pa- past its tipping point and it collapses and once it's collapsed all complex systems again have this property called hysteresis which in this case means that if you pass a tipping point it takes far more energy to get your system back past that tipping point into the state it was in before than it takes to push it uh, over. So it's like a boulder wedged on top of a hill with a little Mm. pebble. It doesn't take much effort to get that pebble out and the boulder rolling down to the bottom of the hill. But to get backwards over that tipping point, you had to roll the boulder back up the hill. So realistically, from the human point of view, if these systems tip, there's no going back. That's it. Curtains for humanity. Goodbye. Jesus Christ. We've had some points on the show before. Yeah. We've had some points on the show before, George, but I think that one there was one that actually made me shiver down my spine <laughs> when you yeah. said it. Um, this is in no way a criticism, but chapter two and three, God, they were like heavy, I think mm. is the best way I could describe it. Because, mm. you know, you're investigating and explaining different systems, connecting, you know, what mm. the problems are what's been happening, what you've noticed in your life when you visited areas. And there were times when I was reading where I would read three or four pages and go, I've got to stop for a bit. I've got mm. to stop, put it down, go for a walk and come back because yeah. it is, it's not nice information. But no. how was that for you, not just researching it, but having to write mm. that down? But like, mm. were you okay mm. during chapters two and three, yeah. I guess? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, I, I, did, I did find it hard. I can't, I mm. can't pretend otherwise. I mean, apart from any... I mean, it was intellectually hard because mm. it required a huge amount of work. I mean, that to try to get your head around these systems, you know, part of the tragedy of humankind is mm. that we are wholly dependent on and we create, quite accidentally, systems too complex for us to understand. You know, even this very complex system called the human brain, mm. which is itself a complex system, can't get its head around complex systems. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what so, a circumstance. <laughs> I know, exactly. And we can't, uh, moreover, we can't understand the complex system, which, which is which in our head. <laughs> the, the brain, yeah. e- even the brain is too complex for us to understand um, in, in its entirety. So, so trying to at least get a handle on... You know, how the global food system as a whole works, you know, to get this sort of really deep and wide systemic picture of what's going on. And 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 as I got towards that, I was feeling you know, no one's telling us this. No mm-hmm. one. You yeah, know, I've got a whole shelf of books on 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 food here. I mean, and 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 I read through those as well as the five thousand papers, and it's like I'm not hearing this. Yeah. This isn't coming through. People aren't explaining what's happening. It's only in these obscure scientific papers which are talking about, you know, not just the natural complex systems which are bearing upon the food system, Mm. like soil, climate, the cryosphere, the ice and snow of the world, 
um, the oceans, all the rest of it, which yeah. bear upon uh, the, the food system. But also the food system itself, the thing that we have created quite accidentally through all our random decision making, is itself a complex system and yeah. has those same properties of a complex system and has adaptive and emergent characteristics and is self-regulating within a certain range of stress and can suddenly break down beyond a certain point, as the global financial system very nearly did in 2008 and required a massive bailout to push it. Back um, up on prevent, the hill. Yeah, exactly. Well, it didn't quite go over, you know, and even though it hadn't gone over, it still needed more energy, i.e. money, to push it back into a safe space and was required to push it out of a safe space-ish. Mm. What, what I came to understand was that even if you forgot about climate breakdown somehow and forgot about soil, and forgot about water and these other huge issues bearing upon the global food system. The biggest enemy of the global food system is the global food system because it has these inherent fragilities which are caused by its evolving structure. And, and in fact, it does look very much like the global financial system approaching 2008, where you see this massive concentration in the hands of a very few corporations. I mean, for instance, there's just four corporations control 90% of global grain trade, to give one example, and there's loads of similar figures in different areas. Um, and not only are you, have you got these huge nodes in the system, which sort of contain a lot of the activity, yeah. they're very closely synchronized with each other. They have built networks of networks, you know, with the financial sector, with IT, with um, intellectual property and the rest of it, which all reinforce that synchronization. And all of that reduces the redundancy in the system, um, reduces the modularity, the compartmentalization of the system, sweeps away the circuit breakers, sweeps, sweeps away the backup systems, so that if it then gets a shock, the whole thing can tip. And how do you know if a system is coming close to its tipping point? Its outputs begin to flicker. Right. And just right. as with the financial system, we saw equity values going crazy before 2008, backwards and forwards. We saw the sudden collapse of, of banks like Northern Rock and then mm -hmm. Lehman Brothers. We're seeing food prices go berserk. Gotcha. And, and there's been fluctuations in food prices, mm -hmm. which are not wholly explicable from harvest outputs and, and the obvious reasons that you would look for but are driven by the systemic instability of this system. And we're in a very, very dangerous place here, even before you consider the climate shocks and the other shocks which are coming our way. And with all the issues that you you highlight in the book, was there a particular one for you that you, the only word I can think of, has struggled with to actually mm, kind of yeah. deal with learning about and communicating with? Sure. So I think one I would really like to draw to people's attention is the issue of water. Mm. because you have all these sort of blithe assertions in the scientific literature and elsewhere saying, right, well, we need you know an extra 50% more food production by 2050. And yeah, we can do that. You know, We can close the yield gap, we can raise crop production, um, and, and we can do that. But when you look at what's required again and again, those projections depend on more irrigation water, yeah. which is fine, but there isn't any. <laughs> That's the problem. It doesn't exist. It's already maxed out. 70% of all the water we withdraw is used for, for irrigation. There are already huge parts of the world where that water is running out. The aquifers are running down. The glaciers and the snowpack are melting. It's Where is it going to come from? Mm. And it's like, it's like, let's all just agree not to talk about this. 
let's all just pretend <laughs> this isn't an issue is and carry is. on yeah. regardless. It really is. Yeah. You know, and, and so one of the flashpoints, you know, is it's so unbelievably dangerous and yet it's just not featuring in our consciousness at all, is the world's biggest irrigated area, which is the Indus Valley. Mm whose waters are shared by three nuclear powers, India, Pakistan and China, and are essential for the survival of some of the most unstable and troubled regions of the world, um, who already, you know, there's a great deal of conflict there. 95% of the water from the Indus is extracted, largely for irrigation. The current development projects, as planned at the moment, um, by, by the end of this decade, intend to raise the use of water by 44%. Like, sorry, what water? What, what, you know, what, what is this? Where's this 44% going to come from? It's like, and then, you know, the whole projected development of the entire region is about, yeah. right, we're going to have more irrigated agriculture, we're going to have more water dependent industry, more water dependent cities, all the rest of it. It's like, sorry, where's this going to come from? Yeah. I mean, at the moment, you know, the, the, we're using almost all the Indus water. And there's surplus flow because the glaciers are melting in the Himalayas and the Hindu Hindu Kush, right? So there's extra flow. That obviously can't last. The flow is going to decline at the same time as demand just rises and rises and rises. Now, you know, there's one analysis which says the war in Kashmir is is, is basically a proxy water war. This is this is India and Pakistan dinging it out over who's going to control the Indus right. and, and its tributaries. <clears throat> yeah. And you know, if the water starts running out and, and demand keeps escalating as it does, I don't know where this is going to end, but I think this could be the beginning of the biggest foreseeable conflict at this end of the tw- 21st century. I should have had a whiskey before this. <laughs> I should have emailed yeah. you and said, should we get a whiskey? <laughs> just yeah, next to each other. <laughs> so it just makes it yeah. a bit easier. But yeah. <laughs> let's, let's, do, let's not do that, but let's... No. <laughs> Let's mood lift this because I will say chapter one made me want to go out there and get an allotment as quick as I could because the way you spoke about the allotment you have had and now have and then the community within that was was probably one of the most motivating things I'd read to go like that's I want to do that. Um, So let's and into the wild question that we always ask people has got to be favourites. What is your favourite food to grow in your allotment? Oh right, well so so I'm exclusively growing fruit now and and that's partly because you know you always have this dream you think yeah when i have children i'm going to grow all the vegetables they're going to eat and of course when you have children <laughs> you don't have a minute to grow anything <laughs> to cook a microwave meal let <laughs> I know, exactly so but the great thing about fruit is it mostly looks after itself fruit trees you you yeah you, you you have to manage them from time to time, mm-hmm. like you do your pruning and you do your fruit thinning and you and you scythe the grass under the trees. But you know, if you leave it for a few months, no, nothing comes to harm. Nice. And 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 so what I'm growing with um, um, my, my friends who I share the plot with, um, we've got like forty trees, mostly apple trees, heritage apples. Uh, we've got cherries, we've got pears, uh, quince, uh, a mulberry. And it's it's great, you know. They're all yeah. these wonderful, I mean, really amazing flavors, textures. My favorite of all, because that's what you asked, is the Ashmead's kernel. It's um, an apple which you pick in October, gets ripe about Christmas yes. time. Yes, yeah, you mentioned it in the oh, book. God, yes, it's so it's such, such a lovely, subtle, interesting flavor. Nice. So yeah, I think I'd put that 
That'll be your favourite. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so one more favourite question is, and mm. I think you might go with the soil here, but mm. favourite, because in your wildlife or garden, favourite bit of wildlife you've ever found or had in? Oh, in 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 the oh, well, no, actually, you'd be surprised. So, so I'm living in Oxford. Yep, we have, uh, as far as I've been able to determine, the only population of urban goshawks in the UK. What? It is so mind blowing. I mean, maybe there are others which people are keeping quiet about, but it's just. I mean, the first time I saw one, it was like all the birds were going absolutely berserk, and I thought, <laughs> "What's going on?" And it flew across the end of the garden. It was like this oh, was just in your garden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This <laughs> goshawk, <laughs> and then, and then, and then next time the gulls were going crazy, and I looked up, and you know, there was this bird which just dwarfed the herring gulls. And the next time I saw it, it was carrying a herring gull. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Yeah. Brilliant. And it's just like, oh my god. It, it's really mind blowing. But your RSPB fantastic. bird count for the garden watch must be amazing. Just one <laughs> yeah. goshawk and you beat one. everyone else. Yeah, that's right, exactly. It's sort of top trumps, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, top trumps. And there's a young you lad win called the goshawk. There's one lad called Indy Green who I know mm. who's going to be very jealous of that. He loves <laughs> right. a goshawk and he's going to be very jealous of that. That's amazing. <laughs> God, yeah. and, and uh, uh, something. Sorry, I'm, I'm boasting now, but I went down to the meadows the <laughs> other day, just down the road, um, very early in the morning, for the dawn chorus, and there was a grasshopper warbler, and I not only saw it, I not only heard it, I saw it as well. I watched it for like twenty minutes, just going <laughs> all this time. Incredible. Wow. We had a Just lovely amazing. pigeon the other day. <laughs> oh, good. I'm, 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 I'm pleased for you. I mean, it's all, it's all, it's all relative. It's all relative. Yeah. When you're in London, central London, you, you, you take your wins. Hey, sorry to interrupt the episode, Nature Nerds. It's Ryan, your host here. I just want to give you a quick shout out about something. Into the Wild always aims to be a free show, accessible for everyone. However, running it is not free. If you would like to support Into the Wild and say thanks, then you can do so by visiting ko-fi.com forward slash into the wild pod. The link is in the write up of this episode. By doing this and buying us a coffee, you are helping the future of Into the Wild. Thanks very much, and back onto the show. So back to your book. Now, mm. you in the book you talk of a friend called Tolly um, mm. and his farm and his kind of career and what he went mm. through. So tell us a bit about what he's doing, why he featured in the book, and what mm. can others learn from what he's doing. Tolly really has anticipated the latest developments in mm. soil ecology by by many years. He he was he was doing it before we were thinking it. And and he sort of worked it out in practice before the theory caught up with what's going on. And he's done something which looks like magic. You know, you would honestly believe it was magic if you if yeah. if you didn't see the evidence for it <laughs> of your own eyes. Where he's on this really rubbish land. It's grade three B. It's like forty percent stone. I mean, it's basically oh, rubble. Wow. Um, yeah, and. And he's trying to grow vegetables on it. And most people would say, don't go near the land like that if you're trying to grow vegetables. But check this. He's trying to grow vegetables without any inputs at all, with no fertilizer, no animal manure, no pesticides, no herbicides, nothing. And not only trying to, he's succeeding in it. And not only succeeding in it, he's hitting the lower bound of conventional yields on good land without any inputs except one millimetre of wood chip a year. 
and oh my and, God. and that's it which isn't a fertilizer it, it's it, it's an inoculant so i'll explain this he's done he's pioneered all these new techniques i mean it's quite amazing he's been at it for 34 years on this one piece of land just working it out from mm. first principles trying this then trying that and tweaking it this way and he's still at it i mean he's an incredible natural scientist i mean he he left school at 15 no qualifications and yet what he's done got 20 years ahead of the science yeah and and he and he worked it all out and he's you know and while he you know he doesn't have a sort of precise explanation of what he's doing and no one yet has he's he's got a broad explanation which fits perfectly with what we now know about the soil which is what he's doing among various other techniques is by altering the carbon to nitrogen ratio in the soil very subtly through this tiny application of wood chip, he's altering the relationship between plants, bacteria, and fungi. And the bacteria and fungi mediate the delivery of, nu- of nutrients to the plant. Wow. And what Tolly's work, plus you know these new findings in soil ecology show, is yeah. that fertility is as much a property of soil biology as it is of soil chemistry. Yeah. And the key thing is is for plants to get nutrients when they need it and not to get them when they don't. And mm. so so it's 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 the two processes are called mineralization mm. and immobilization. And mineralization is when minerals are released and plants can use them and immobilization is when the minerals are locked up and 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 they're not biologically available and both are equally important. Because if you don't have the immobilization, those minerals just leach straight out of your soil and into the nearest river. And what Tolly has has managed to do is to create a system first of all that's watertight you know he doesn't let the sun see the soil he keeps it um in constant cultivation with green manures under the crops and all the rest of it and he he's got a really cool very very clever and intricate system for 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 making that work but also just tweaking that relationship so that the bacteria and fungi acting as that channel between plant and soil which which is what what they are make sure that plants get everything they need when they need it and nothing is released when they don't um and and because you know plants can't get minerals without bacteria and fungi they can't yeah. extract them from the soil by themselves they have to be delivered they have to be made available and you know the bacteria and fungi break the mineral bonds making them available they bacteria also um, turn nitrogen into nitrates, making those available. And and if you can get that right, you can, as Tolly shows, do away with all fertilisation. You don't need any. That's incredible. How long has he been on that soil? 34 years on, on, on wow. that farm. And he's been, is this process, like how long did it take him to kind of figure out this process? Was this like kind of, did he know the direction? Was it accidental? Or? It, it started off entirely accidental. He He, he was... You know, he, he he was a, I mean, he tried various other um, organic um, growing in in other places, and and it it hadn't all gone right for him, and he ended mm. up here and looked around for a source of manure, and there wasn't a good local source of manure because right. he was just like, so oh, I don't like the look of that, you know, it's sort of not coming from good places, and so mm. so he had heard about the sort of traditional Chinese approach of using green manures to to draw up small amounts of nutrients from deep in the subsoil and then yeah. to hold on to them and thought, okay, that's that's interesting and started experimenting with that and was getting reasonably good results. And then took it on himself to think, yeah, it's there's something missing, there's something missing. And he started 
experimenting with this wood chip, and from one year to the next, his yields doubled. That's amazing. Um, and it's gone on from there, yeah. That's just such an incredible... I love people that think like that, yeah, that just go, yeah. okay, I'm getting results, but there's something missing. I can get more That's here. Right. And exactly. it's, that, it's that thinking. If, if we didn't have people that had that brain... I know. We would still be in the dark ages. No, no, we really would. And the thing is, he's still doing it. You know, if, if I was in his position, I'd say, oh, great. Okay, mission yeah, accomplished. Exactly, yeah. I'll just keep doing this <laughs> That's thing. That's what I would and, be like. <laughs> and, and, but he, he's thinking, no, 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 it's still, it could still be better. It could yeah. still be better. And he's constantly pushing that. And and I think, you know, for me, the sort of great, I mean, there's loads of great insights I get from him. And, and he's, you know, even though I was sort of look, looking at loads of different farms and different mm. examples from, from around the world, you know, is Tolly became the guiding light because of of the way he's he's seen the world and, and that others haven't seen it. Yeah. And one of the things he says is that you know these things we call agricultural soils in countries like the UK they're forest soils. You know, they they weren't born as agricultural yeah. soils. They, <laughs> they they develop underneath trees, and those trees are absolutely crucial to the development of those soils and the carbon that they drop in very small quantities. And it was from his love of trees, you know, and, he, and that's his first love. You know, he was originally a woodworker and he's really obsessed with trees that he understood what was missing from, from the soil. Right. And, and he said, you've basically got to mimic a forest soil in your agricultural setting. Do you reckon could his system be in- introduced? <laughs> I yeah. asked that while smiling. I think you know why. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Could it? Yeah. Yes, so, will it? <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. I mean, there's, there's all. There's a lovely quote from him. He, he said, "You know, I've had, I've had, um, um, representatives from three governments come, um, come to see this farm." And I said, "Oh, well, including the UKs." He said, "No, of course not. <laughs> why, why would they? <laughs> why the hell would they be here?" <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but, but, yeah. I mean, it's you know, it's not. Easy. I mean, mm. you know, the system might be replicable, but Tolly isn't. Yeah. You know, and, yes, that, and, of and you do need people who are really smart and really dedicated and really stick at it and work unbelievably mm. at, at long hours as he does to get it right. Now, it could be that you could simplify things partly through a much better knowledge of the soil. Mm-hmm. Um, and a group of us um, now got together with a group of scientists. We're working on this. We're trying to develop what we call an Earth Rover program. We've got a Mars Rover program nice. um, to look at the surface of that planet, but we scarcely know anything about the surface of our own. <laughs> and, um, and and actually, we, we are bringing together some really exciting technologies, one or two of which have never been used for soil before. And we think we're on the cusp of something very exciting there. And if we can get that right, and see into the soil to an extent that we haven't been able to do before, then it might be a lot easier to replicate the kind of thing that Tolly's doing without the huge amount of effort which is currently required. And I, one question I really want to ask you, for me, someone that just wants to do the right thing, <laughs> wants to go out there and make sure my money's going in the places that it should be to benefit this world, mm. how do I buy food? Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> simple I mean, question. <laughs> yeah. Well, there is one simple answer, which is you stop eating animal products. You cool. know, then that that is the sort of the the top answer. In in that, you know, I mean, it is fairly simplistic, but it makes a massive difference. I mean, there is no good way of eating animals or their products. You know, okay. there's lots of people who will tell you there is. Oh, yeah, buy organic pasture fed beef. That's possibly the most damaging of all farm products. Wow. 
largely because of the huge amount of land it requires. Yes. You know, and people say, oh, yeah, the problem is intensive farming. We need extensive farming. You say, no, no, hang on a moment. Yeah, intensive farming is a huge problem. But so is extensive farming because, by definition, it means more land for yeah. the same amount of food you, you, you're producing. And every hectare of land you use for extractive industries like farming is a hectare not available for forests, for wetlands, for savannas, for all the other wild ecosystems mm -hmm. which are absolutely essential to sustaining life on earth and without which we are going to have a sixth great extinction and so the amount of land that should be our crucial environmental metric yet we scarcely think about it mm -hmm. so how much land are we using for farming so by far far away the greatest land use for farming is for livestock and by far the most profligate use of of farming of land for livestock is is grazing so um, of all the world's land, 12% is used for growing crops, 28% is used for grazing, and yet animals fed on grazing alone produce just 1% of our protein. Whoa. It's an amazingly, you know, we talk about waste. This yeah. is the biggest waste of all, the waste of land yeah. for, for, for low-yield farming. You know, and, and there's nothing lower yield than organic pasture-fed meat. <laughs> um, it also happens to have horrendous climate implications. The organic pasture-fed bit is much, much worse. I mean, you know, intensive corn-fed beef, grain-fed beef is bad enough. But organic pasture-fed beef, massively greater um, um, uh, greenhouse gas implications. It's a total disaster, and we've been conned. We've been completely conned by all this sort of regenerative ranching stuff. It just... It just doesn't add up at all. It's it's one big confidence trick. So yeah, getting out of eating animals is crucial. But you know, I, I want to make this much easier for people, and this is why I'm so interested in precision fermentation, mm. in growing our protein and fat by completely different means, basically brewing it and brewing microbes to produce protein and fat. I think has has a greater potential than any other environmental technology to pull us back from the brink. This topic of farming, I can only talk from the UK, is quite a touchy subject for a lot of people. It's personal. It's a life. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, you know. You know, it's it's a lifestyle. It's a history. It's a culture. It's a it's everything to some people and nothing to others. Do you ever feel wary about the topic itself, communicating it with the backlash? Yeah, I mean, you know, I get a lot of trouble for it, you know, and there's an assumption I get from farmers a lot is that, you know, you hate farmers and you hate farming. And you know, I really don't. I really, really do not. Mm. But I'm I'm the messenger who's who's getting shot here because you know, I'm just saying, look, there are real problems here. Let's not let's stop pretending. Yeah, these things are not real. Let, let Let's stop. Um, pretending that that we can just carry on the way we're going and not cause Earth systems collapse, mm. you know, by far and away the greatest cause of habitat destruction, of biodiversity loss, of extinction is farming, not intensive farming or extensive farming. Farming yeah. is not the adjective; it's the noun which yes. is the problem. Yeah. That's what's driving that Earth systems to disasters. Yeah. And 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 it's also one of the top causes of climate breakdown, top causes of water pollution, even air pollution, which we don't think about much. And it's like, you know, let's get real about this. Let, let's let face this. And yeah, people are going to get upset. People already are very upset. But, you know, I, I'm not going to stop saying what I believe to be true, what, what I've been seeing in the scientific literature, just because it's going to upset some people. Yeah. My, my job 
is to say things which people don't want to hear. Yes, yeah. 37 years of doing <laughs> Exactly. You're not going to stop now, George. No, no. <laughs> um, my last question to you is one that everyone gets on the show. And I guess maybe probably the hardest one is, if you could pass on one bit of advice onto everyone on the planet regarding the natural world, what bit of advice would you pass on? Mm. Recognise that what we're dealing with are not the simple systems that we've been taught at school, but something completely different, which operates on totally different principles, which is complex systems. And now it's not inherently complex to understand how they work Mm. because the same fundamental principles govern them all. But you come to completely different conclusions once you understand that they're complex systems than you do if you try to regard them and try to treat them as simple systems. So just having a basic grounding in complex systems theory will take you a very long way towards understanding, I mean, not just the natural world, but understanding our human-made world as well. Yeah. You know, I mean, if politics uh, understood that society is a complex system and it can't really be successfully controlled from the top down by one group of people saying you're all going to do what we we say but you know would be far more successfully organized along participatory and deliberative democratic lines then oh the world would be a much better place <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so so it's it's like it's just sort of recognizing what we're dealing with mm. and you know and a good Starting principle for that is what John Muir said that you know when you try to pick out anything by itself, you find it hooked to everything else in the universe. Amazing, George. Thank you so much for being on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for the book. It is incredible, and also just thank you for not giving up. Genuinely, because <laughs> I can't imagine the headaches you've had in your life. <laughs> not enough paracetamol on the planet. But thank you so much for your journalism and your investigation of the problems going on and bringing it to everyone. Thanks so much, Ryan. Real pleasure to talk to you. Thanks again for listening, everyone. If you'd like to keep up to date with the guests that have appeared in today's Into the Wild episode, then you can do so on social media. Their tags are in the write-up of this episode. Also, you can follow us on social media at Into the Wild Pod on Twitter and Into the Wild Podcast on Instagram. And if you'd like to get in touch about Into the Wild or ask any questions or suggest any ideas for some episodes, you can email me at intothewildpod at gmail.com. A quick note to say that all the opinions and expressions expressed in today's episode belong to the person that said them and do not represent those opinions held by Into the Wild or anyone that we work with or are affiliated with. Into the Wild always aims to be a free show, however running it is not free. If you'd like to support us and say thanks, then you can do so by buying me a coffee. Our Kofi link is in the write-up of this episode. Until next time, keep well, stay safe and live the good life.